began what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. It was on October 31st, the year 1517, again 500 years ago, that Martin Luther posted what we call the 95 Thesis. There were 95 things that he said should be discussed and taught to reform the teachings of the one and only church of that day, the Catholic Church. And that scene was a recounting of or retelling of what happened in the year 1521, just a few years later, where he was brought together in the German city of Worms. That's what's called the Diet of Worms. It was the word diet actually at that time really meant assembly. So it was an imperial assembly, as you saw, brought together to see what would they do with Martin Luther. Now, if you don't know, just a little bit of history. Martin Luther was a priest. He was a monk, a professor in the Catholic Church. He loved his church and he loved his God. But God, through many ways, got a hold of his heart and convicted him that the authority, the true authority in anyone's life did not lay within the leadership or doctrine of the church, but within the authority of the Word of God and the Word of God only. And he spoke at that council in the year 1521 those very famous words that that clip ended with, where he said that he would firmly stand on the Word of God, especially when it came to this idea of salvation. And he said, under good conscience, he could not recant. And he finally said, here I stand. I could do no other. God help me. He did what he was convicted to do was right. And so after that, He was excommunicated from the church. He went on to translate the Bible into German. And of course we know from that point on, in the year 1517, which it started in 1521, from this assembly going forward, we have what we call the Protestant Reformation. See, it wasn't Martin Luther's goal to start a whole new movement. He wanted the church to teach properly what the Word of God and the Word of God alone said specifically about its authority and about the gospel, the true gospel, the gospel of grace. It was this age-old division between grace and the law, between faith and works, and it had come up again and He had the courage to stand up for what he believed the Word of God said. Uh, Later on in the fall, as we actually reach this 500-year mark on October 31st, we're going to be doing a whole series on uh, the Reformation. And uh, there's a lot that came out of that and what that looks like. We're going to do a whole series on that. It'll be four or five weeks, kind of look at the history of it. Because it is so important, it is considered 
a watershed in the history of the Christian church. If you know what a watershed is, it basically means that it was a movement in a different direction. Going forward from that point on, there was an established change of direction from something that had been established to a brand new way, a paradigm shift, if you were. Now, why do I bring this up now? Well, for one, it is the 500th anniversary, which is amazing to think that this happened 500 years ago. But don't we still struggle with this idea of grace versus the law, of faith versus work in our lives, and what does it mean in regards to this simple word, salvation? But I also bring it up because of this. We have come to our text today in the study of Acts, which I'm going to read in a moment, is Acts chapter 15. We're going to read the first 35 verses, but very simply, here's what it is. Because I'm not going to spend a lot of time dissecting this passage. Because all that is happening here is another watershed moment in the history of the church that begins at the very beginning and birth of the Christian church. It is what's called the Jerusalem Council. So I want to kind of bring you up to speed to where we are and why this is so significant and how it is connected to what happens 1,500 years later with Martin Luther in Germany. What's happening in our text in Acts 15 is Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. You remember we said where they went, they established some churches and they started out from the church in Antioch. It was their sending church. And when they were done, they backtracked and went through and established elders and leadership and encouraged the people. And they got back to the church in Antioch to report all that happened in their first missionary journey. They were so excited. But right away, Paul especially had heard there was already some false doctrine being taught in the churches they just established. So he wrote the letter to Galatians that we have in our New Testament today. That's when he wrote it. Right after the journey, right before what we're going to see in Acts 15 today, the Jerusalem Council. Because he wrote to them to remind them about the freedoms that they have in Christ. Remember, we went through that months ago as a church, the book of Galatians. It's all about freedom. How we are no longer under the um, oppression of the law, but we are freed by the gospel of grace. So he wrote that, and what happens is they realize that it's such a big issue in the fledgling church. Now that more and more Gentiles are coming to the faith, because you know how they're now spreading the word and sharing the word with not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, and more and more Gentiles are coming to faith, there are now these Jewish Christians who are now saying, wait, okay, this is getting to be a little too much. We need to start reminding them that in order to be true Christians, they also need to be under the law and circumcised. We talked all about that, this group called the Judaizers, because their doctrine, their belief was simply this. Yes, you are saved by belief and faith in Christ, but also then by keeping the Old Testament law, which includes circumcision. So they were teaching to these brand new believers You're kind of halfway to be a Christian. You have to become circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to truly be saved. And Paul and the leaders of the church said that is a false gospel. 
And so what happened was the church leadership convened a council in Jerusalem where the mother church is. Remember that? Where it all started in Jerusalem. So the church in Antioch, which was mostly Gentiles who sent Paul and Barnabas on the missionary journey, they said, let's send some representatives. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to gather all the leaders, the elders, the apostles, and we're going to make sure once and for all that we make it known what the true gospel is and the true means and way of salvation. Does it involve circumcision and the law, or is it simply as is preached by Paul, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look at what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is the, this is the verse that we always come back to. This is the verse that the words that Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians years later, but it sums it up. It sums up this crucial doctrine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. See that? And as a result, not of works, so that no one may boast. Paul stated it very succinctly and clearly. Perhaps it's a a couple of verses that you've memorized. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That it is not of our own works so that no one should boast. It is simply a gift of God. These are the words that convicted the heart of Martin Luther. Among others, when he simply got together with his his fellow leaders in the Catholic Church and said, we need to be standing on the Word of God. And it says that salvation is not by our works So he was calling on the carpet the leaders of the church, the Catholic church at the time, and said, we're teaching the wrong thing to our people. We're teaching them about things called indulgences where you could pay money to make sure that your dead relatives got out of purgatory quicker. You see? And all these other things that went along with it, that's why he wrote what's called the 95 Thesis, a list of 95 things that he said we need to discuss and get right Because he loved the church and he loved the people. But more importantly, he loved the Word of God. And he knew what it taught. And he knew what it said. And so here's a great connection between what happened in the early church at the the Jerusalem Council and what happened about 1,500 years later at this Diet of Worms in the, the German city of Worms where you just saw what happened. Where he is called on the carpet. And he basically said, I have to stand on the word of God and the word of God alone. To understand what it truly means to be saved. That's what they were doing back at the Jerusalem council at the the outset of the church. When all these Gentiles were coming to the faith. They had to say once and for all, let's get this settled. You see, Paul and the other leaders and Barnabas and even Peter, they thought it had already been settled. Remember we had talked way back in... A few chapters ago in Acts, we talked about what happened with Peter and at the house of Cornelius. Remember when the whole household of Gentiles was saved and there was miracles and signs and wonders and they reported back to these same Judaizers and they couldn't say anything about it. 
And so they thought, Peter, Paul, and the others, they thought the issue was settled. But it came up again. And you know what? It still is an issue today. Because we still, in many ways, whether we realize it or not, try to work our way into heaven. Even if we claim faith in Jesus Christ and we claim those words from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Yes, we're saved by by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works. We still let it sneak and slip back in, don't we? That we try to earn our way. Why is that? Because it doesn't seem fair that that we would not have to pay for something that we get. It's a gift. Did you ever just receive like just a great compliment or a gift out of nowhere? Isn't it kind of humbling, even awkward? Like you feel like you don't deserve it. Exactly. We don't deserve it. So I'm going to read this passage in Acts 15. It's 35 verses. But please, uh, read it along with me. It'll be up on the screen or in your Bibles. And um, you're going to see, as you, as you hear it or as you read along, keep it in the context of what I just described. The context of what was happening at the church that once and for all, they had to get everybody together to say, is it salvation based on grace alone or are we adding the law to it? Once and for all, let us decide. Because they realized... Again, this was a watershed moment in the early church. If they did nothing about it, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So let's read this, Acts 15, 1 to 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And this brought great joy to all the brothers. So when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this very matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about what happened at Cornelius' house. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, meaning the law? But we believe that we will be saved 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, would you listen to me? Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so he had just quoted Amos. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and for what has been strangled and from blood. From the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, who were leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The letter continues. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, what has been strangled from sexual immorality. If you keep for yourselves these things, you will do well. Farewell. That's the letter. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, they remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. There's a lot that happened here. But again, I kind of gave you a summary and a context of it. And again, here's what's happening. They recognize that more and more Gentiles are coming to the faith, right? As they just came back from their first missionary journey, it was very successful. But there is this group belonging to the Pharisees who are now believers in Christ who are saying, you need to still work for your salvation. Yes, it's in Christ alone, but 
Christ alone plus works, see? And that's what they were teaching. So they realized, the leaders of the church, we've got to do something about this. If we're going to keep moving forward and sort of go on our next, our second missionary journey, we need to settle this now. So they convened this council of all the leaders in Jerusalem, and that's what they did. And when they had shared what God had done through Paul and Barnabas on the journey, it was just like when Peter was at Cornelius' house, like, man, look at what happened, and the Holy Spirit showed up. It was all about God. See, they made it a point, Paul did especially, to say, it wasn't me. This was a God thing. And so those who were dissenting could say nothing against it. So they sent this curious little letter back to it. It said really nothing of this idea of grace and works, but it was more of just saying, hey, we know that there was some false doctrine there. Recognize it wasn't from us. And please believe. And he went on to mention these four things about what you need to abstain from. Things like not eating things that were strangled or the blood. And you see that? I don't want to go into too much of that, but basically what those four things are saying is even beyond the Mosaic law, these were things that God sent out way back in Genesis to say, look, if you're going to live the life that I've called you to live as even just a proper human being and one that follows after me, this is what you need to abstain from. Specifically, he says, not only sexual immorality, but you don't eat blood as food. It's not fun to talk about, but God sets that up. Blood is not food. But why? In a sense, is because blood is the life source, right? So he says, if you're going to kill and eat, make sure that you remove the blood first. And so that was what he was t- referring to. He was just saying, just follow the basic tenets of God, even outside of what the Mosaic Law then really confirms. So that's what was happening here. And as we saw on the video clip, there's a lot of similarities to what's happening in the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther. Because why? What was at stake? It was the idea of simply, what does it mean to be saved? So for our remaining few minutes together, here's what I simply want to do. I want to share with you, what does it mean to be saved? What does this word salvation mean? So follow along, I'm going to go through it quickly, but please understand the importance of this foundational doctrine of the church, of the true gospel, and of salvation. Because that's what Paul and Barnabas and the early church leaders were fighting for, for the freedom in Christ, the freedom to understand that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. I'm going to share with you what that really means in light of the true gospel. So what does it mean to be saved? Again, this is what is at stake at the Jerusalem Council 1,500 years later with Martin Luther at the beginning of the Reformation. What does it mean to be saved? Is it being an adherent to the church and, and giving your money and doing everything the church says? Or is it simply being founded on the Word of God? And Martin Luther came to that conviction that he needed to stand it on the Word and he could do no other. Because he said those words, here I stand. Don't you think that's what he meant? He meant, here I stand, like I'm standing before you, but here I stand on the Word of God. So what does it mean, this word salvation, to be saved? We kind of throw it around a lot, don't we? But let's make sure we understand this critical teaching of Scripture. 
Because they were fighting for it, we need to continue to fight for it as well in our churches and in our lives. Salvation is simply the deliverance from something that is dangerous. Deliverance from suffering. Salvation is used in different ways in Scripture. It could mean being saved from a dangerous situation. But in a spiritual sense, salvation means we are being saved. If it means from something dangerous, then what is that thing that we're being saved from? It is from sin. It is from the wrath of God. See, the doctrine of salvation teaches us that we are saved from wrath. That is God's judgment of sin. Right? Our sin is what separates us from God, and the consequence of sin is death. Romans 6 says that. So follow along. This is very logical, but this is the way we need to understand it. Biblical salvation refers to our deliverance, then, from the eternal consequence of sin. So therefore, somehow it has to involve the removal of sin, right? If sin is not going to uh, be a problem for us anymore as far as our eternity, then it needs to somehow be removed. So what are we being saved from? That's the initial question. When we say to somebody, come to Jesus and you can be saved, don't you think it's important that you explain what it is they're being saved from? What do we need to be saved from? It is from the wrath of God because of the judgment of sin. But who does this saving? And this is really the crux of what was happening at the Jerusalem Council and at this council where Martin Luther stood his ground. Who does the saving? God does. I have to tell you that you can do nothing to earn your own salvation. I hope you believe that this morning. You, can, you can't do enough good works or enough things to please God as we say to earn your way into heaven or to earn your salvation. God is the one who does the saving. Only God can remove sin and deliver us from the penalty of sin. So if we know we're being saved from the wrath of God and the consequences of sin and that only God does the saving, how does it happen? God has rescued us through His Son, Jesus Christ. John 3.16. Thank you. Who said amen? Thank you, brother. Specifically, it was Jesus, it was His death on the cross and His resurrection. Didn't we just remember that and celebrate that a couple of weeks ago? The death of Christ on the cross and three days later, His resurrection. That is what achieved our salvation. Scripture is very clear that it is by grace we have been saved. We just looked at it, Ephesians. You can put that verse back up. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, remember it, write down the the passage. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, it's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. It is not of works so that no one can boast. So it is God who does the saving through His Son, Jesus Christ, It is not of our works. But then the final question begs to be asked, how do we then receive that salvation? If we now know it, listen, if we now know what salvation is, that it is being rescued from a dangerous situation, and we know that that situation is the wrath of God because of our sin, 
And now we know that it is God who does the saving. It's not our work. And how does He do it? He does it through Christ, His Son, His death and resurrection. The final question is, how do we receive that salvation? Ephesians says we are saved by faith. It is God's graciousness because it has nothing to do with us. Do we understand what that means? Grace means unmerited favor, so we did nothing to deserve it. So it's God's grace, saved by grace, through faith. Through faith in Him, which means we have to hear the gospel. That's why we go on missions trips. That's why when we walk out the door, we share the gospel. That's why Paul and Barnabas went out on a missionary journey. The church sent them and said, go share the gospel, the good news, so they could all hear and believe. So we hear it, but then we must believe. And that word believe simply means to fully trust in the Lord Jesus for our salvation. There's, this involves repentance, which certainly means not just saying you're sorry for what you've done, but repentance it really means a changing of the mind that you would change your mind about sin and about Christ. So if we know what we're being saved from, that it's God who does the saving, and He does it through Christ, we know that we receive it by faith. Romans 10 tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that what? That God raised Him from the dead that you will be saved. So what is, finally, what is this true gospel? When we say, go share the gospel, the good news, this is what Paul and Barnabas were fighting for. The true gospel, not the false gospel of adding works in, of of our works. It's the true gospel that Martin Luther stood on, saying that it is not how much we can give to the church or going through all of these rituals and motions, it is what the Word of God says it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's make sure that we don't miss this. Please, church, you cannot earn your salvation. It is a gift of God. Ours is to put our hands out in desperation, in humility, in surrender, and accept that gift by believing and trusting. What does the word gospel mean? Anybody? What does it mean? Good news. So what's the good news? We just said it. What's the good news? That God offers a chance to be rescued from this dangerous situation, the consequence of sin. The good news is that He offers it as a free gift. We don't have to do anything to earn it. And He offers it through His Son Jesus. And that was completed at the cross it was completed remember what jesus said on the cross he says it is finished it is finished that means you don't have to do anything else to add to this true gospel of god's graciousness but to understand that the gospel means good news we have to understand why it's good news So if you have to understand why it's good news, don't we have to understand why there's bad news? There's got to be bad news involved, right? Just like we said, if if salvation means being rescued from something, well, what is that dangerous thing? What's that thing we're being rescued from? It's sin, the consequence of sin. 
So here when we say the gospel is good news, what is the bad news? See, the Old Testament law was given to Israel during the time of Moses. It was, it's been called sort of a, a standard or a measuring stick, right? And sin is anything that falls short of being perfect and um, going according to that stand, standard. The righteous requirement of the law is impossible for us as human beings to fulfill and follow perfectly, either in letter or in spirit. So despite how good we are or how bad we are in relative to each other, we're all sort of in the same boat because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all in this dangerous situation of the punishment and consequences of sin. Are you following me? I'm almost done, but this is important that we get this, the true gospel. See, the law established the fact that cleansing from sin can only happen through a blood sacrifice of an innocent life. That's why we read in the Old Testament about the animal sacrifice, right? Of an innocent life, the animal did nothing to deserve that. So who was the perfect Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world? Jesus Christ. He had to come to earth. He had, God had to take the form of a human being so that blood could be shed. Do you understand that? And he had to live a perfect life, which he did, so he could be that perfect sin offering. So the gospel, the good news, is that the bad news has been overcome. That it was through Jesus' death on the cross was the sin offering to fulfill the law's righteous requirement. Do we see that? He didn't come to abolish the law. He became to what? Fulfill the law. But of course, the gospel involved Jesus' resurrection. He was the, Romans 4 says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. If you want to write it down, go to 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6. That's the whole gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6. If you want to know where to start, start with that. Because Paul explains exactly what he was called to share. The final thoughts on this. 1 Peter 1, 3. Listen to these words. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So the gospel is good news when we understand that we do not and cannot earn our salvation. That's why I believe it's such good news. Do you agree with me? It's such good news because we cannot do it on our own. If we tried, we would fail. Just like keeping the law, the law was given to show that humans cannot, cannot forgive themselves of their own sins. We cannot earn our own salvation. That is the good news. The work of redemption and justification is complete. Jesus said it was finished. It was finished on the cross. We were once enemies of God. You know the Scripture says that? We were enemies of God. We have now been reconciled to Him by the blood of Christ. So simply, if we reject the Gospel then we accept or embrace the bad news. And there is then condemnation. We then subject ourselves to that dangerous situation that we need saving from. Salvation 
It was the matter at hand that the Jerusalem Council and the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, what it all stood on. Where is the authority? The church or the Word of God? And if the authority is in the Word of God, it says that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works that anyone can boast. It's a gift of God. It is His gift to us. Let us remember the simplicity of what it means to be saved. That we have to be saved from something. That we don't do it ourselves. That God does the saving. And that when we say we need to share the gospel or live out the gospel, it is the good news. It's the good news that we cannot earn salvation on our own. Remember the thief on the cross? Remember the thief on the cross. I love, I love that passage of Scripture that tells us what Jesus said to him. When he in his last moments of, of life and breath, he believed. He didn't even have time to do good works, did he? He simply believed. And what did Jesus say? Today you will be in paradise. Amen. Is that awesome? And he was with him forever because he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the beauty of the gospel. God, we know the importance of salvation, that we don't get it wrong, that we understand what you tell us. Thank you that we are saved by your graciousness, that it's all of your work, that it is simply through faith that's how we receive it. And that it is not dependent upon any good works that we do, but simply that we come to you in faith. We thank you for that beautiful gift that we simply need to reach out and grab a hold of and accept and say, thank you, Father God. Father, I would ask, Lord, without even, without even the right words to ask, God, Despite, despite God, despite the imperfect words, would you let today be the day of salvation for many? Father, you have beautiful creations that have walked through this door today. Those whom you created who you have known before they were even in their mother's wombs. God, all of us, we walk through these doors, but Lord, there are some that have not yet believed in Jesus as the one who can save them from the consequence of sin in this life and eternally. God, would you let today be that day of salvation, of hope, of peace, and of freedom. God, let today be the day that those even in this room right now hearing my voice who have not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation, that they would do that now in the quiet of their heart asking You to forgive them of their sinfulness that they would accept You as their Savior. God, let today be the day of life. Let today be that day. 
And Father, we'll give you all the glory for it. And for those of us who have already surrendered our life to you and believe on the Lord Jesus, God, help us to always remember and never forget the simplicity but the powerful truth of the one true gospel, which does not include the law or any of our works, but it is simply a gift of your graciousness. We thank you for that. And we thank you for accomplishing it through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for Him above all else. Let our hearts continue to be changed and transformed by the power of your Word, by the power of the Gospel. And may we always be willing to fight for that freedom and to say along with Martin Luther, Here I stand. I can do no other. God help us. Amen.